chapter 8, and today we're about to embark on a journey in what I believe is one of the most important pieces of scripture in all of the Bible, and I'm excited to preach on it today, but I have one thing that I need from you. I need you to preach this passage of scripture to yourself every day the rest of the week. Can you do that? And you'll see why here in just a second, but I need you to commit to preaching the gospel to yourself every single day this week. Now, typically at church on Easter Sunday, which is where we are here today, people talk about the historical event of Jesus's death and resurrection. And those, that is an incredible thing to devote your Easter energy towards. It's truly mind-blowing and it's life-changing. But the way that I'm wired is, and many of you are probably like me, maybe not, I like to think of the why behind everything. Anybody in here ever just always think, but why? Anybody? Parents love kids that are always going, but why mom? But why dad? And that's how I'm wired. I'm sure that my parents loved that from me. Why did Jesus have to come to earth as a human and be crucified on a cross and then be resurrected three days later? Or maybe I'll say it this way. What are the outcomes of Jesus's actions on the cross? If Jesus did this very difficult and painful thing, there must have been a very good reason for it, right? Right. So why? In some ways, the answer can be very robust, very complicated. Jesus accomplished a lot over the course of what we call Holy Week. But the answer is also profoundly simple, and I love this. He did it for you, and he did it for me. And he did it for everyone who calls him Lord. So what impact did this series of events have on every human who will ever exist. Today, I want to show you in Scripture, in Romans, what I believe is truly an incredibly foundational part of the life of a Christian. And side note, this is why, what we're going to talk about today, this is why Christians celebrate Easter with such purpose and pageantry. You all look so nice today. The reason you get dressed up for a day like today is because of what we're about to talk about. So just a moment, I'm going to read you Romans 8. We're going to start with verse 1. But I want to give you context in order to understand how significant Romans 8 verse 1 is. I need to explain how it relates to the previous seven chapters. So we'll be done in a couple hours, okay? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This letter is addressed, the the book of Romans, the letter of Romans is addressed to the church in Rome, which Paul, the author, these are his people, right? You have your people. Many of them are here with you today. These are Paul's people. He loves these people dearly. And on top of that, he wrote this letter in the, the middle of his major ministry efforts. Essentially, at this point, he is a gospel preaching machine. And so in order to convey how significant the work of Jesus is on the cross, both in his own life and the life of every single Christian going forward, Paul spends seven chapters, chapters one through seven, describing the journey of a person as they navigate life in what we know to be a broken world. You see, our world is definitely a very beautiful and delightful place. 
in many ways. Of course it is. God created it. Many of you traveled over spring break and went to beautiful places. You've seen the beauty of it. But it is also broken. It's also full of pain and sadness and evil. And Romans 1 through 7 highlights all of these realities. Here's an example. In Romans 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now I know, that verse, like of all the verses, right, Pastor, that you're going to read on Easter, to me, first thing, that can sound like you're rubbing salt in an open wound. Really? All of us fall short of the glory of God? Yeah, it is. But it's actually good news. The truth is, that it may sound like bad news, but it's actually good news for two reasons. One, it says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning we're all in the same boat. So every single person sitting in this room is in that same boat. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you can look to your neighbor and say, you're not perfect. Go ahead, just turn to your neighbor and tell them, you're not perfect. <laughs> Oh, some of you are taking this real seriously. I love that. The second reason why it's actually good for you is, it, is it's because it's the reason why Jesus had to do the work of being crucified and resurrected. And he did so for every single person. Because we're all in the same boat. The fact that he did the work that he did on Easter weekend shows that he did it for every single person who's ever lived. So then chapter 7, which is where we're going to go here in just a second before we get to 8, we see this incredibly real struggle that Paul writes about. And all of us, I think, can relate to this. And so I want to read these words to you from chapter 7, starting in verse 15. If you want to follow along, it will be on the screen, or you can just listen. This is Paul writing. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. Anybody else relate to that? Right? You're like, why did I respond the way that I did? What did I say that for? How come I am the way I am? He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not know what I want. But I do, I'm sorry, but I do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be, to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war, the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I just imagine Paul writing this as like almost like an emo band leader. 
right? Like you can just hear it in his, the angst in his voice as he writes this. He's like, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, but I don't do the things I want to do. I think we can relate to that. What Paul is getting at here is very important. The law of God is good and perfect. The law of God is good and perfect. Now we can be tricked into thinking that the law of God is too heavy or oppressive, but it's actually good and perfect, and it's that way for our benefit. See, our problem is, or at least my problem, and maybe again you can relate to this, that if I break that I break God's good and perfect law every single day. I break it every single day. And just like Paul, as he describes here in Romans 7, I feel my imperfections on a daily basis flaring up inside of me all of the time. And I don't like it, but I'm stuck as Paul was. And maybe you can feel this as well, but between doing what I want to do and not doing what or I'm sorry, doing what I don't want to do and not doing what I know I should do or what I actually want to do. I strive for what I should do, but I never get it perfect. And what Paul is saying in here is God's law acts like a mirror. It shows us, it shows us that um, his ability to be perfect is him and him alone. That we were never designed to be perfect. Or once creation happened and the fall happened, it was impossible for us at that point to be perfect. So God's been working to restore that very design since the fall. And so that law is like a mirror where we look into it and we see, man, I'm not getting it right. All the things that I wish I could do perfectly, I'm not doing it to the standard that I want. And it's perfectly summarized in that last verse of chapter 7. It says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thankfully, thankfully, his letter does not end there, right. though, right? Yeah. Like you, le- you read that and you're like, yeah, I can relate. Thanks a lot for the good news, Pastor Rick. <laughs> it doesn't end there, though. His writing doesn't end there. In the very next verse in Romans 8.1 is one of the most important verses for anybody ever to hear. Amen. And it says this. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. I love this verse yes. so much. Do you know what this means? That even though you do what you don't want to do and you don't do what you know you should. That there's still not an ounce of condemnation for you when you are in Christ Jesus. Yes. This is the big why. Behind what Jesus accomplishes on Easter. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No matter how many times you've messed up, there is no condemnation. No matter how many times you've let your spouse down, no condemnation. No matter how many times you snapped at your kids, there is no condemnation. No matter how many times you've cheated on your homework, no condemnation. No matter how many times you've lied to your friends or struggled with sexual addiction, no matter how many times you've mismanaged your money, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the why. That's the big why behind what Jesus did on Easter weekend. 
Now it's possible that some of you are saying, okay, that's cool. But the things that I've done are way worse than the things that you just mentioned. And so I want to talk about this for a second. Is salvation in Jesus available to the worst of the worst? The answer is yes. Does the murderer deserve a second chance? No. But they still get it because God offers it. Yes. Right? Is there restoration for the rapist? Yes. And I struggle to even say that because I don't like that. But it is out of my commitment to preach the gospel and my loyalty to God that I say yes because God says yes. Come on. Are there still, still earthly consequences for our behaviors? Of course there are. But God is a God of second and third and fourth and inf infinite chances that he wants us to come back. It's his gracious behavior, his gracious heart that draws us back into him despite how bad we are and how many times we do the things that we don't want to do. In fact, one of the things I was talking with somebody about this this week, one of the things that's actually great about the consequences for our behavior here on earth, our bad behavior specifically, is the consequences of those behaviors, while they feel terrible, they're actually a gracious way of God inviting us back out of that behavior. So even the consequences for these terrible actions are a signal to us that God is drawing us out of those and back to him. If you don't believe me, just think about King David. Yes. He was a murderer and a rapist, and God still loved him. Yes. And God still used him to further his kingdom. In fact, Jesus comes from the lineage of this very same person. Mm -hmm. So the beauty of the good news is that, yes, you have another chance. You have not gone too far. Now, it also helps me or reminds me of a few questions that I often raise myself when I hear about the good news and often get asked about pe from people when they know that I'm a pastor. They say, well, okay, first of all, how is that fair? How is it fair that no matter how bad somebody is, that they get a second chance, especially when I'm pretty good? Maybe they don't say it like that, but that's what they mean, right? The answer is it's not fair. But it's not fair for your benefit and for my benefit. If God was purely about fairness, purely about fairness, then you would get so many worse things than you've already got. Right? I mean, if, I just, if I'm just honest with myself and honest with you, that it's not fair for our benefit because every single day we get the law wrong. And yet... God stepped in, and the good news is, is that he's taking care of that. So it's not fair. It's not fair for your benefit. And then the second question is, if this is the case, why would I ever change my behavior? Why don't I just keep going on, doing all the bad things that I do, and just ask for grace every single day? Well, the answer is you could do that, but here's what's wrong with that line of thinking. God's design for your life is better than your design for your life. God's design for your life is better than your design for your life. So the thing that you do that you shouldn't do that you think is going to bring you the happiness or the peace or the joy or whatever it may be, God's design is actually better than your design. And he's calling you out of those behaviors so he can give you the robust, beautiful goodness that he's promised you 
through the work of Jesus. In fact, the next section that we're going to go to, starting in verse 2 in Romans 8, highlights how much better a life in Christ is than a life not in Christ. It says in verse 2 of chapter 8, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, have you ever seen those old school cartoons? And maybe they're still this way. I don't know. I just don't watch a lot of cartoons anymore where there's like a character and then there's like an evil character on one shoulder and like an angelic character and they're always arguing, right? I feel like this whole section that we've been reading is sort of inspired, has inspired these cartoons, right? Just like there's this drag, drag out, knock down, drag out pull for your decision and your mind and your processes that's happening inside of you. But here's the thing, as it says right there, the law of sin and death is not where you want to be. It's not what God's given to you. In fact, you've been set free by the law of the Spirit. Therefore, the only option that we have to live the best life possible is to give our life to Jesus. It's not to be really good. It's not to gain all the things that we think we want, but it's to give our life to Jesus and receive life in the spirit verse 3 continues on it says for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So here's what a life in the law of the Spirit or a life in Jesus looks like in a snapshot. It's a life full of love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the list goes on. Doesn't that sound like the best version of life? Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. You're sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not convinced. Yeah. Doesn't a life of peace sound better than a life without peace? Yes. Yeah. Right? A life of joy better than a life without joy? I mean, this is a better design than anything that we could have drummed up ourselves. So why wouldn't anyone want this in their life? Why wouldn't anyone want this in their life? Sadly, it's not a matter of want, though. It's actually the result. If you don't have these things, it's the result of rejecting the invitation into a life, into the Spirit, a life with Jesus as Lord. Christians celebrate Easter with so much pomp and circumstance and gusto and it's done so because they have the gift of salvation and they have life in the spirit. And does life feel perfect every day? No way. Just ask anybody who's a Christian who's lived a day of life. It doesn't always feel that way, but it is their reality. Yes. Yes. And so it's not a matter of wanting. It's a matter of giving your life to Jesus. It's as simple as that. The section goes on in verse 7. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. 
If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In Jesus, we have a life filled with the Spirit, with the the fruit of the Spirit filling our soul. All of those things that I just read, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those things in Jesus begin to well up in you. In Jesus, our souls are fully alive. Apart from Jesus, parts of you are dead, meaning that you cannot be fully alive apart from Jesus. In Jesus, we have the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead dwelling inside of us. Apart from Jesus, we are left to our own capacities. Now, I will admit, you all are very awesome people, but I haven't seen any of you resurrect a human body. (laughs) Right? I haven't seen it happen yet. In fact, the only thing that I can resurrect is a decent mustache. Okay? (laughs) And so unless you're as awesome as the Spirit of God and have the power of God, then you need that power to be put inside of you. And the way that you do that is you call Jesus Lord and you live a life committed to Him. Now along with life in the Spirit, something else pretty incredible happens when you call Jesus Lord and you give your life to God's design. Verse 12 talks about it. It says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. As I read this passage throughout the week, I was struck by God's generosity. The result of Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected is that we are invited to receive a life in the Spirit and become part of God's family. We are co-heirs with Christ. We're not sub-level family members, the ones that you're going to send to the basement today during, (laughs) during dinner, right? Not those type of family members, ones that get to sit at the main table just as Jesus does. That means that our inheritance as sons and daughters of God is the same as Jesus. It's the kingdom of God. It's a personal relationship with the God of the universe. It's eternal life and access to everything we would ever need to accomplish the good design that God has made for every single one of us. You and me. Now you're thinking, maybe, okay, this is a great story, but I just don't think that God could possibly love me After everything I've done, thought, and said. And I understand that if you're at an ounce of self-reflection in your life, you're like, man, I just get it wrong so much. 
Trust me, I'm right there with you. But I want to finish our time today in Scripture by reading you a parable, a teaching of Jesus that he uses to bring out a truth that God wants to convey to every single person. It's found in Luke 15, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 24. It's the story of the prodigal son. It says this in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to, the, to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and yet no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, and I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still long off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So just in case you didn't catch everything that's happened in that passage, here's the story. They have a, have a really wealthy man who has two sons. And one decided that he no longer wanted to be part of the family. That he wanted to go off and do his own thing, live his own life, not do what he was destined to do with his family. And so he asks his dad for his inheritance early, which is extremely disrespectful in this culture. And he goes and he takes it and he lives a wild life and he squanders everything that he had been given very quickly to the point that when the famine hit, he had nothing to eat, nowhere to go, nowhere to stay. And so he starts thinking to himself, man, I've really, really messed this up. I've really squandered the opportunity that I had and the life that I had. And I've abandoned the family that my father created for me. And so he musters up some courage to talk to his dad and maybe go back and work. He says, you know, I know I don't deserve to be part of the family anymore, but maybe I'll go work for my family since at least they have a lot. And he practices the speech, right? He says, I know that I don't deserve anything, but please will you hire me? So he musters up the courage to go home. He has his speech ready. And then he gets to a point where his dad can see him just far enough off that he can barely see him. And he stands up, his dad stands up and he runs to him. A very undignified posture for the head of 
an estate. And he runs to him. And he says, Dad, Dad, I, I know that I don't, I don't deserve it. But would you just take me? And before he even gets that sentence out, he says, hey, everybody, my son is back. Get him a robe, get him shoes, and let's throw a massive party for my son who has returned. It's totally unbelievable in the sense that the son didn't deserve that. And yet it's totally believable for those of us who have kids because we love our kids like crazy. And Jesus teaches in Matthew, he says, if you're good at giving your kids gifts, how much better is God? At giving his kids gifts. And it's a story like the prodigal son. Who shows us God's character. That no matter where we've gone. No matter what we've done. No matter how far we've strayed. And the things we've done with our life. That he's waiting for people to come back. He's waiting for his children to come back. And it's not even the posture of a servant that he's asking for. He's saying, no, no, no. You're a co-heir. You're still part of this family. Not because you deserve it, but because I said so. That's what Paul's writing about in Romans 8. He spends seven chapters talking about the type of life that the son lives and what he actually deserves compared to what God has said. But what I want to give you is a second chance. And he gets to do that because he's God. And that's what he said to every one of us as well. And so in just a minute, we're going to pray. In fact, I'm going to have the band come up, and we're going to sing a couple songs to close out our time. But I couldn't take this opportunity, or I couldn't miss this opportunity, rather, to tell this beautiful story of the type of God that we love. And the reason behind why we celebrate Easter the way we do, because God has given us second and third and fourth chances, not because we deserve it, but because he's God and he loves his kids. And the only thing that we have to do in order to come back into that family, maybe you're already there, maybe you're in the family, praise God, raise a loud voice as we sing in just a moment, thanking God for that, but maybe you're not there. Maybe you're watching online and you're not there right now. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm kind of like that kid. Or I'm kind of like the person who, you know, who is described in Romans 7. Just doing all the things you don't really want to do and not really doing the things that you know you should do. And you're just thinking to yourself, I, I just, I know that God can't possibly love me the way that this scripture is saying that he does. I just want to pray for you and tell you that that's not true, that that's a lie. Because there's example after example in these passages and infinitely more passages in Scripture that tell us that God is waiting with open arms for any single person who wants to return. And so I'm going to pray. And if that's you, if you're like, "I, I really want that opportunity, I want to come back, I'm just going to invite you to pray this prayer. Just pray it to yourself as I'm praying. Make a step. Give your life back to Jesus. Let your life be filled with the Spirit, filled with salvation. The greatest gift that God could give us was 
taking our burden, taking our sins, taking our mistakes upon him and paying for them so that we have this opportunity to step back into our life as co-heirs with Christ. That's why we celebrate Easter the way we do. That's the why. That's the why. Let me pray for us. God, we come to you. We're so thankful for Easter, for the work that Jesus did over the course of Holy Week, preparing this space where we can come and we can worship. And for those of us who call Jesus Lord, who live a life in the spirit that we can celebrate, that we can celebrate mightily, we can feast together, and that we can have peace and joy and patience and self-control. These things that you promised to us, that we can do that and laugh together and love each other. We thank you for that reality. And for those of us who are like the younger child who have just said, I wanted to do things my own way, but I recognize that God's design is better than my design for my life. I pray that those of us in that space would come back to God. We don't even have to have a speech prepared. We just come back to God, that we would pray the prayer, God, Savior. Give my life to you. I want to live your design. So God, I pray that people who are praying that right now in their life, that you would touch them, that you would reach out to them and just give them those things that you promised, a life in the spirit. For those who are mulling that idea around, God, that they would would make that decision, that they would commit to you that they would take that second, third, fourth, fifth chance, God. That they would find out what it means to be in the family of God, to be adopted into God's family, to be co-heirs with Christ, where there is no condemnation. No condemnation. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me? We're gonna sing a couple songs.